Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, January 12th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Scott Wallace with today's top stories. Uganda declares its Ebola outbreak over. Russia's Wagner Group says it's taking control of Solidar. A report finds that U.S. and U.K. weapons killed 87 Yemeni civilians in just over a year. Flights across the U.S. are grounded due to a computer glitch. A British Tory MP is suspended over COVID vaccine comments. Australian Cardinal George Pell dies at age 81. The GOP vote for an investigation into Biden's presidency. FTX lawyers say $5 billion in crypto assets have been uncovered. Four Trump lawyers face prosecution. And the U.K. government introduces controversial anti-strike legislation. Our top story, Uganda declares an end to its Ebola outbreak. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, New York Times, Reuters, The Guardian, and CNN. On Wednesday, Uganda declared an end to the Ebola outbreak that began in September of 2022. Ugandan authorities had initially struggled to control the outbreak that infected 143 people and killed 55, but later swiftly brought the incident under control. The World Health Organization also declared an end to the outbreak after it determined that there were no new confirmed or probable cases in Uganda after 42 days, which is twice the incubation period for Ebola infections. Ebola is a viral infection that is transmitted through bodily contact with a human or animal that is infected or has died from the virus. Uganda was impacted by the Sudan strain of the virus, which has no approved vaccines or therapeutics for treatment. The outbreak began in Mubende and spread to other areas of the country, including the capital city of Kampala. The initial opportunity to quell the spread was reportedly missed, causing a two-week delay in an outbreak declaration. Ugandan health services were able to gain control of the virus in November. Dr. Jane Ruth Akang Okero, Uganda's health minister, said Uganda quickly ended the outbreak by ramping up key control measures such as surveillance, contact tracing, and infection prevention and control. The outbreak, the eighth in Uganda's history, lasted 113 days. And although it seemingly has ended, the health minister urged residents to remain vigilant and report any community members with potential Ebola symptoms. Scott, thank you for the facts on that first story. Here on Improve the News, we like to separate the fact from the narrative spin. On this story, we've got two narratives available. The first, Narrative A, has been provided by CBS News. Since the severe Ebola outbreaks of 2013 and 2016, African health authorities have stressed the importance of being prepared for the next outbreak. Uganda did an excellent job coordinating its containment measures to make sure the results of this outbreak weren't worse and it was able to keep the virus from spreading beyond the country's borders. And we have a narrative B from Stat News. Generally, Uganda was fairly well prepared and did its best to contain this outbreak, but health authorities couldn't circulate a vaccine before transmission of the virus was stopped, opening the door for future outbreaks. A well-managed stockpile of unlicensed vaccines would make it possible to start a trial and eventually prevent future outbreaks. Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. It's day 322 
regarding the situation in Ukraine, and the head of Russia's Wagner Group says his troops control Solidar. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Understanding War, CNN, and Ukraine Forum. The head of Russia's Wagner mercenary group, Evgeny Prigozhin, has claimed that his forces have taken control of the small but significant Donetsk town of Solidar after weeks of fierce fighting. If confirmed, control of the town, which lies 9 miles or 15 kilometers north of Bakhmut, would mark Russia's first battlefield breakthrough since the summer. Posting a picture of himself surrounded by Wagner forces in what appeared to be one of Solidar's salt mines, Prigozhin said Wagner units have taken the whole territory of Solidar under control. He added that Ukrainian troops were surrounded in the center of the town and that there are street battles going on. The number of prisoners taken will be announced tomorrow. However, the Institute for the Study of War, or the ISW, a U.S. military think tank, pointed to Prigozhin's statement that street battles are going on, saying it indicated that Solidar was, in fact, not under Russian control. Russian forces have not captured the entirety of Solidar, ISW said, despite several false Russian claims that the city has fallen and that Bakhmut risks imminent encirclement. In his nightly address, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky thanked the bravery and steadfastness of Ukrainian fighters in Solidar, but made no mention of the military situation on the ground. On Wednesday, Ukrainian armed forces denied that the town has fallen. However, Zelensky added in his address that four former Ukrainian MPs have been stripped of their Ukrainian citizenship after they were accused of cooperating with Russia. If people's deputies choose to serve not the people of Ukraine, but the murderers who came to Ukraine, Zelensky said, then our actions will be appropriate. Zelensky also addressed the Golden Globe ceremony held on Tuesday. There are still battles and tears ahead, but now I can tell you who was the best in the previous year. You in the free world, who united around support for free Ukrainian people, he stated. Meanwhile, in addition to attacks on Donetsk, where Ukrainian officials said one civilian was killed and one more was injured over the past day, Russian attacks were also recorded in Kherson, Kharkiv, Sumy, and Dnipropetrovsk. Five civilians were reported injured during attacks on Kherson. Pro-Russia officials from the Donetsk People's Republic, or the DPR, reported that one civilian was killed and 14 more were injured in Ukrainian attacks in the same time period. Thanks for that update, Adam. We have an anti-Russian narrative from Newsweek. If Russia has in fact taken control of Solidar, it would be a hollow victory as it has little military or tactical benefit, and it will not improve Russia's prospects elsewhere. Whatever happens in this isolated incident, Ukraine will win the wider war. And there's a pro-Russian narrative provided by TASS. Russia's liberation of Solidar is extremely significant as it paves the way for Russian encirclement of Bakhmut, as well as further advances in the Donetsk region, which it will soon completely control. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction community. And this one says there's a 2% chance that Ukraine will officially recognize a former Ukrainian territory, Luhansk, Donetsk, or Crimea, as independent before 2024. I don't know, Adam. Wake me up when Russia conquers a pepper mine, and then then we'll have some. Then we'll have something. Then they will be peppering all of the salads in Eastern Europe. If you can get salt, pepper, 
If they can get a garlic powder mine too, then they'll really have the market cornered. But then, then all of European food will just be bland. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You say the salt mine's not a big deal, but wait till you get to, till your scrambled eggs are bland. I think I yeah. think that might make France fold. You know, they've folded for less things. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, take away their make their. I don't know. They use unsalted butter anyway, lost, though. I don't we know. just lost our viewership in France, uh, and we don't, we can't even bring on uh, Jerry Lewis as a guest to bring them back we in either. Bring, well, it's we too can late. bring the ghost of Jerry Lewis mm, back. They in would. A, they would line up for him. Hello. Oh, Mr. Flamishef, Mr. Flink, Mr. No, Flamishef. <laughs> Hello, ladies. All right. <laughs> According to a report, U.S. and U.K. weapons killed civilians in Yemen. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC, The Guardian, Oxfam, The National News, Independent, and The Associated Press. An Oxfam report published on Wednesday says that United States and United Kingdom weapons used in Yemen by the Saudi-led coalition killed at least 87 civilians and wounded 136 others in just over a year. The report, which covered the period between January 2021 and February 2022, said that the UK government has ignored a pattern of harm, arguing that it amounts to legal grounds for Britain to limit arms sales to Saudi Arabia. In addition to the reported 87 civilian deaths, Oxfam claims that the Saudi-led coalition's airstrikes were responsible for at least 19 attacks on hospitals, clinics, and ambulances, 293 attacks that forced people to flee their homes, and widespread destruction of vital infrastructure. The report comes only a day after the U.S. military seized over 2,000 rifles destined for Yemen from a fishing boat in the Gulf of Oman, using a route allegedly frequented by Iranian smugglers supplying the Houthis. Oxfam's claims also come ahead of a legal challenge put forward by the Campaign Against Arms Trade, or CAT, against the U.K. government for supplying weapons used in Yemen's war, with Oxfam supporting CAT's challenge. The war in Yemen began in 2014 when the Iran-backed Houthis captured the country's capital, Sana'a, thus pushing the internationally recognized government into exile. The Saudi and Emirati-led coalition then entered the war on the side of the government the following year. Scott, thank you for the facts. We have an establishment critical narrative on this story, and it's provided via Inkstick Media. The West's role in the influx of weapons in this conflict, and by extension, its role in the country's crisis, can't be overlooked. As it hypocritically denounces Iran's suspected supply of weapons, Western countries themselves continue to heavily arm Saudi Arabia in the hopes of cozying up with the oil-rich nation, and innocent civilians are paying the price. And we have a pro-establishment narrative from the Financial Times. The West's involvement in the conflict goes far beyond Saudi Arabia's worth as an ally. It's a response to the Iran-backed Houthis, who are a terrorist organization. Even though the Saudis have met some of the Houthis' demands, the rebels won't let up, leaving the Saudis with no choice but to continue their efforts. Adam, speaking of Saudi efforts, have you heard the rumors that uh, Vince McMahon's selling the WWE to the country of Saudi Arabia? No. Yeah, that's suppo- that, that's the word on the... Uh, on the wrestling uh, rumor mill that that's there there you know the same thing that owns the uh, live golf tour that kind of saudi entertainment federation fund 
is looking to buy uh, WWE. So that's kind of a big deal. This could be big news for the Iron Sheik. I know. Finally, he can get the title back. Big comeback <laughs> time for the Iron Sheik. I think he'll, he'll just probably take over for Vince McMahon. You know, he'll be like, yeah. he'll be the, the, the lead spokesman will be the Iron Sheik. Do you Sheik. know that Iron Sheik was a real Iranian bodyguard of like the, the, the yeah. Ayatollah? You know, he was like a real military yeah, guy. He was, he's, he's like as legit as a wrestler can be, he is. That's that's what I would say. And then there's Sergeant Slaughter. <laughs> He's our representative. (laughs) That's our guy. Oh, man. And in local news, an FAA computer outage has grounded flights across the United States. And here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, NBC, New York Times, Daily Mail, and Popular Science. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, has lifted its order to ground all domestic flight departures after its notice-to-air mission system, which provides pilots with pre-flight safety alerts, went down Wednesday morning. However, some airlines continue to endure resulting delays and cancellations. With over 5,400 flights within, out of, or into the U.S. having been delayed through Wednesday morning, the failure of the system that alerts pilots to hazards, like runway closures and nearby construction cranes, was called catastrophic by the U.S. Travel Association. In a tweet, the U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg said the FAA was working to fix the issue swiftly and safely, with the Biden administration recently adding that there is no sign of a cyber attack. This comes after the FAA on Tuesday announced it's requiring charter airlines, air tour operators, and plane manufacturers to establish well-informed pilot alert systems as the result of congressional action in 2020, following two deadly crashes of the Boeing 737 MAX aircraft. The nationwide grounding of all planes, the first of its kind since 9-11, also comes two weeks after Southwest Airlines' pilot and crew scheduling system collapsed, stranding thousands. The FAA situation could potentially point to a similar out-of-date system issue. All right, Adam, thanks for the facts on this developing story. We have a pro-establishment narrative from USA Today. With over 29,000 commercial flights across the U.S. each day, the safety record has been almost flawless and is demonstrated by the rarity of major or serious incidents. The U.S. regulatory system has ensured that flight and aircraft safety is the best in the world, which is a direct result of the regulations established by the FAA. If anything, the U.S. shouldn't become complacent, as it has come to expect safety and efficiency as the norm. And there's an establishment critical narrative provided by New York Post. The FAA's overbearing and overwhelming regulations are directly linked to air travel challenges for passengers. A significant percentage of delays and cancellations are due to FAA traffic management initiatives. These overreaching rules not only frustrate passengers and bog down the system, but they also burn pilot hours each month that impacts staff availability to ensure safe and timely flights. How often do you fly, Adam? I do not fly that often, mostly because I don't go that far away, nor could I afford to go that far away, because flying is expensive. It is expensive. If flying is one of those things that, for what you're getting... It is reasonable to pay a bunch of money to, to fly from one side of the country to the other. But on the other hand, it's too expensive. It's both amazingly cheap and cripplingly expensive at the same time. And it can be so inconvenient, the amount of checkpoints and things you oh, want to yeah. go have to go through. When I go, I try to take a small bag 
pack it myself, keep it with me, put it in the overhead or whatever so I don't have to deal with baggage yep. check-in. Lean and mean, baby. Only way to go. And news from the UK. Tory member of Parliament Bridgen loses the whip over a COVID tweet. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, BBC News, Telegraph, Metro News, Independent, and The Times of Israel. Britain's Conservative Chief Whip Simon Hart announced on Wednesday that Member of Parliament Andrew Bridgen for Northwest Leicestershire has lost the party whip a few hours after he compared the use of COVID vaccines to the Holocaust in a now-deleted tweet. Bridgen, who is currently serving a five-day suspension from the House of Commons for allegedly violating parliamentary rules on registering financial interests, will now sit as an independent while a formal investigation takes place. The backbencher, who has become a prominent anti-vaxxer in recent months, with dozens of tweets claiming the jab was harmful to people, wrote that the vaccine program was the, quote, biggest crime against humanity since the Holocaust, end quote, quoting a cardiologist. This parallel with the Holocaust came alongside data posted by the libertarian Zero Hedge financial blog and news aggregator. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak condemned Bridgen's comment at the Prime Minister's questions, deeming this linkage utterly unacceptable and expressing his resolve to eradicate anti-Semitism from British society. Holocaust symbolism has often been used in anti-vaccine demonstrations, according to the annual report published last year by the World Zionist Organization and the Jewish Agency, which voiced concern over an alleged trivialization of the Holocaust. Scott, thank you for laying out the facts of that story. We have a pro-establishment narrative connected to it that was provided to us by Sky News. Not only is Bridgen's comparison deeply offensive— but it's also dangerously wrong and highly irresponsible, as COVID vaccines have saved millions of lives and could have avoided some 600,000 deaths if a World Health Organization target of vaccinating 40% of the global population before 2022 had been met. Ideological beliefs should play no role in scientific debates, as the safety and efficacy of vaccines are tested rigorously in clinical trials. And The National brings us an establishment critical narrative. While Bridgen's comment was undoubtedly tone-deaf, his punishment for sharing the views of a cardiologist is disproportionate to his so-called crime. Although rare, there has been evidence of vaccine side effects, an individual should be free to question the establishment, regardless of their political role. The Member of Parliament has rightly deleted the tweet, and now it's time to focus on his alleged violation of parliamentary rules. And the nerds of Metaculus have an opinion on this story. They say there's a 3% chance that pediatric cases of hepatitis with unknown origin will be conclusively linked to COVID vaccination. And that's according to the Metaculus prediction community. I feel like this whole thing is straight out of wag the dog. Unfortunately, instead of creating a controversy to distract from his original controversy, he did something way worse. You instead. just know you don't compare anything to the Holocaust except for maybe the Holocaust. Yeah, even that's a little dicey. Set up your phone to any time ho- you type in the Holocaust, it just automatically yeah. deletes it. Uh, that's what yeah. you do. Uh, no. Cardinal George Pell has died at the age of 81. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Guardian, RTE, ABC, and Associated Press. Cardinal George Pell, who served as Archbishop of both Melbourne and Sydney before becoming the treasurer of the Vatican, died on Tuesday at age 81 
after heart complications following hip surgery, according to church officials. Pell, Australia's most senior Catholic, was convicted in 2018 of sexual abuse while he was Archbishop of Melbourne in 1996. After 13 months in prison, Pell's convictions were acquitted in 2020 by a unanimous decision in the Australian High Court. Before the convictions were quashed, Pell was the highest-ranking Catholic to be imprisoned for child sexual abuse. In 2014, he was assigned to reform the Vatican's finances as head of the Secretariat for the Economy and was widely seen at the time as the third most powerful figure in the Church. Pell attended the funeral of Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI on January 5th. St. Mary's Cathedral has confirmed that Pell's body will be repatriated to Sydney to be laid to rest in the church crypt after a requiem mass in Rome. Pell was also involved in an ongoing civil case alongside the Melbourne Archdiocese brought forward by the father of a former altar boy. According to lawyers, the case will move forward against his estate. Thanks for those facts, Adam. We have a narrative A on this story from Crisis Magazine. Pell was a champion for Orthodox Catholicism in an age of liberalism and survived the painful story of being cleared of crimes he was found to have never committed. The victim of outrageous injustice, Pell's spiritual poise and strength throughout his legal ordeals show his true character. While abuse found within the church should be rightly exposed, Pell's conviction was a miscarriage of justice. And there's a narrative B provided by The Guardian. After Pell's name was mired with accusations and charges, it's difficult to judge the truth surrounding allegations about him. However, at best, the Cardinal failed to uncover some of the worst cases of child sexual abuse in the Catholic Church's history, a controversy that will taint his legacy regardless of any good he achieved. I don't know if this is the worst person in the world or one of the biggest victims in the world, and I'd rather just move on. I think he, uh, it's like he went on from being someone's creepy uncle to playing Santa Claus in the, in just the, in the blink of an eye. Leave Tim Allen out of this, okay? <laughs> the GOP vote for an investigation of the Biden presidency. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, CNN, Fox News, and Daily Wire. The new Republican-controlled U.S. House of Representatives on Tuesday voted along party lines to launch a select subcommittee to investigate what they describe as President Joe Biden's weaponization of the federal government. The investigation will include probing claims that the Biden administration pressured big tech to censor views that run against its policies. As the result of concessions made by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy to reach the required votes to secure his new role, the panel will be housed under the Judiciary Committee and will have access to the same highly classified material given to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. Having been compared to the Church Committee of the 1970s, it will look into how executive branch agencies collect, compile, analyze, use, or disseminate information about U.S. citizens. Representative Elise Stefanik, Republican of New York, has also emphasized her party's desire to probe the FBI and Department of Justice. Republicans have vowed to investigate many other issues, including Hunter Biden's business dealings, the border, the origins of COVID, and the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Meanwhile, Democrats claim the committee is a fishing expedition without merit. 
This comes as the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability launches its own investigation into revelations that classified documents from when Biden was vice president were found at his private Penn Biden Center office. Thank you, Scott. As you can imagine, with a politically fueled story such as this, we have a Democratic narrative spin, and it's provided by CNN. To secure the speakership, Kevin McCarthy granted concessions to the House GOP's most militant and conservative faction. While conservative activists have cheered the outcome and insight that a more right-leaning agenda is necessary, the historically Republican voters from well-educated suburbs are distancing themselves from this side of the culture war, which could devastate the party in 2024. And counter that with this Republican narrative from the New York Post. Biden's corruption was a well-known Washington secret long before Donald Trump ran for office, and these so-called far-right Republicans pushed McCarthy for concessions. The GOP faction understands not only that it's Congress's duty to keep the executive branch in check, but also that American voters from all sides are eager to learn what their leaders have been doing behind closed doors. And there's also a cynical narrative attached to this story provided by Forbes. The start of the newest session of Congress highlights the pain of what happens when parties fail to collaborate as Republicans and Democrats become increasingly at odds. With the Speaker technically not required to be a House member, per the Constitution, it may be best to pursue a third-party neutral figure next time to help calm the growing chaos in Washington. And we've got another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 71% chance that the Republicans will keep control of the U.S. House of Representatives in the 2024 election. I just wanted to point out the difference between Democrats and Republicans that I see in this story. Pre- you know, the January 6th committee was a witch hunt. Yep. The, Dem- the Republicans describe it as a witch hunt, so scary and, you know, it's hunting witches. Democrats describe this, uh, they're on a fishing expedition. That's, that's pretty colorful language. Cal- calm down. Yeah. Hey, relax. Just relax. It's just a fishing expedition. We got a couple tall boys in the cooler. Crack them open. Right. Drop a line. They're just fishing. Yeah. Nothing important. FTX lawyers say $5 billion in crypto assets were uncovered. And here are the facts, as agreed upon by NBC, Fox News, Wall Street Journal, Decrypt, Coindesk, and New York Post. At a Delaware bankruptcy court on Wednesday, Lawyers for crypto exchange FTX said the company has recovered $5 billion worth of liquid assets. None of this amount reportedly includes any illiquid cryptocurrency assets. The uncovered assets, allegedly including cash, liquid digital assets, and investment securities, comes as FTX under new CEO John J. Ray III is trying to recover as many customer and investor assets as possible following the company's collapse under the previous CEO and founder, Sam Bankman-Fried. The newly discovered amount also doesn't include the $425 million being held by the authorities in the Bahamas or the company's current book value of $4.6 billion, of which the firm is hoping to sell hundreds of holdings. After FTX filed for bankruptcy in November, the new CEO was initially unsure of how much they would recover for reimbursements. Then in December, the company estimated it could find $1 billion, with estimates of how much is owed in total being as high as $10 billion. 
though the company's chief financial officer, Mary Celia, estimated last month that the entire recovery process would be completed by April. Delaware Bankruptcy Court Judge John Dorsey set a March 15th deadline at Wednesday's hearing. The company, once valued at $32 billion before its collapse and the arrest of Bankman Freed on federal fraud and conspiracy charges, is also looking to sell affiliates Ledger X, Embed, FTX Japan, and FTX Europe, for which it was seeking approval in court on Wednesday. Thanks for those facts here at the intersection of finance and tech. We have a narrative A from Watcher.Guru. The entire FTX saga has shown the corrupt and volatile nature of Sam Bankman-Fried, the crypto industry at large, and its regulators. As the company scrambles to find assets for paybacks, the crypto market is tanking. Entities like the Federal Southern District of New York are probing how wide-ranging potential offenses are, with bribery, fraud, and campaign finance violations all in play. And there's a narrative B provided by CoinGape. Despite the myriad problems exposed by the FTX fiasco, cryptocurrency can't be counted out as a viable investment. With wages slowing and the service sector contracting in the U.S., it's possible that the Fed will ease up on interest rate hikes, something very positive for the crypto market. A market rebound may be on the way. You got any crypto? Did you get swept up in this thing I at all? did not get swept. I, I, and now would be the time to buy crypto, you know. But Well, uh, that's they say you should be fearful when other people are greedy and greedy when other people are fearful. Yeah. Isn't so. that kind of like the, uh, that's ba- basically the theme for the stock market itself, right? Yeah. Buy low, sell high. So yeah. Just, so. See if I'm buying, man, I'd, I'd love to have those little bitty coins though. They just oh, the re- actual physical of, coin? Yeah. An actual yeah. physical crypto coin. It reminded me so much of like, you know, cashing out a dollar bill at an old arcade and getting tokens. Getting tokens. Yeah. I'm going to jam a Bitcoin into a uh, Pac-Man machine and see can, what happens. You'll just be able to, you'll be playing for a year and a half. Yeah. Well, well, not in this market. It's will say, but right now need two bitcoins. <laughs> Insert three coins. Trump's lawyers could face prosecution after the January sixth committee's referral. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Guardian, CNN, Yahoo Finance, and Reuters. The House committee investigating the January sixth, twenty twenty one Capitol riots has referred four of former President Trump's lawyers for possible prosecution by the Department of Justice which some legal experts say could increase their chances of facing criminal charges. The panel said John Eastman, Jeff Clark, Rudy Giuliani, and Kenneth Chesborough gave Trump erroneous advice while the former president was contesting the results of the 2020 election. The committee linked that advice to the events at the Capitol. Last month, the committee referred Trump to the DOJ on multiple charges relating to the aftermath of the 2020 election. Referrals hold no legal weight and don't necessarily compel the DOJ to take action. Rudy Giuliani, Trump's former attorney, was subpoenaed by a federal prosecutor in late 2022. The subpoena requested documents regarding payments Giuliani received while he was filing lawsuits contesting the 2020 election results. The subpoena was presented before Attorney General Merrick Garland appointed special counsel Jack Smith to lead Trump-related probes. People familiar with the matter say prosecutors are looking into Trump's post-election fundraising organization, the Save America PAC. Giuliani has come under fire recently with a Washington, D.C. attorney ethics committee saying he violated at least one attorney ethics rule while working for Trump. He also has had his New York state law license suspended in June of 2021 for making demonstrably false and misleading statements. 
Thank you, Scott. We have a democratic narrative that's been crafted by Vanity Fair. Finally, Trump's cronies are closer to being charged for their role in an attempted coup to overthrow American democracy. Trump's lawyers, most notably Giuliani, added fuel to the fire by giving wildly inaccurate advice and filing frivolous lawsuits with the explicit goal of obstructing the peaceful transfer of power. Everyone involved must be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Contrast that with this pro-Trump narrative from trending politics. Between the sham January 6th House Committee and the biased special counsel appointed by Biden's DOJ, the American people cannot trust justice to be fairly served. Jack Smith has demonstrated a clear political bias as he was involved in the IRS targeting of conservative nonprofits. And now he's heading up the latest phase of the witch hunt against Trump and his lawyers. There it is. Witch hunt. Told you. I would much rather go on a fishing trip than a witch hunt. Totally. You're, yeah. You're, First of all, there's a lot more walking. If anything, you're not going to come back with any witches. You know? Yeah. With a fish fishing trip, there's no chance of any witches. With a witch hunt, you might get a witch, and witches are nasty. If you catch a witch, you got a problem. Yeah, that that's catching a tiger by the yeah, tail. Yeah, yeah. And if you catch a fish, you've got you've got dinner. Yeah, you have dinner, yeah. <laughs> Our final story turns its attention to the United Kingdom where the unions are criticizing the new strike laws. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, BBC News, Financial Times, CNBC, Reuters, and Telegraph. Under the terms of proposed new legislation in the UK, Business Secretary Grant Shapps would be able to determine statutory minimum service levels that certain public services must meet. The opposition Labour Party, along with unions, has criticized the bill, which may undermine the ability of many public sector workers to strike. Unions have threatened legal action if the bill passes. Shapps has defended the legislation, which he has argued is intended to protect lives and livelihoods amid a wave of labor movement activity in recent weeks. He has relayed to the House of Commons that he considers the legislation compliant with the European Convention on Human Rights. The law will impose arrangements on ambulance, fire, and rail workers and could unilaterally impose minimum service levels on other sectors. UK Prime Minister Sunak continues to face difficult negotiations with workers. Many striking employees are demanding better working conditions and pay raises in line with inflation, still at double digits in the UK. General Secretary of the RMT Rail Union Mick Lynch has called the legislation an attack on human rights and civil liberties, and the Labour Party has said it would repeal it if it wins the general election set for 2024. Sunak is expected to unveil the new laws on Thursday. All right. Thanks for those facts, Adam. Let's start our last round of narrative spins with the right narrative from The Spectator. At a time when ambulance staff across the UK are refusing to attend even severe emergencies, such as heart attacks and strokes, Labor leader Keir Starmer's decision to stand against this legislation may turn out to be a mistake. Sunak is not trying to take away the right to strike. However, Starmer may be setting himself up to be portrayed as a friend of the militant unions at an electoral cost. And the right narrative is usually followed up by a left narrative, and this time it is provided by New Statesman. These draconian anti-strike laws are undemocratic and, ironically, unconservative. A key tenant of Thatcherism was battling against the unions. 
but the right to industrial action is key to libertarianism and free markets. The clear thinking of previous union reforms is conspicuously absent here. Evidence that this is an ill-considered and rash response to current disputes rather than a carefully constructed piece of legislation guided by ideological principles. And Metaculus takes us home with this nerd narrative. It says that there is a 22% chance that the Conservative Party will form the first government after the next UK general election. I wish I knew more about uh, parliamentary uh, governments. Are you being serious? Do you really wish that? Or Well, why? Do you know a class? <laughs> Are you... <laughs> you... So let's say you did know more about parliamentary governments. What would you do with that information? I'd, I'd understand that nerd narrative a little better. Mm, yeah, that's true. It'd be worth it. Yeah. Well, the, you know, 10,000 hours, you'll, you'll get there. I'll get there. Thanks for the moral support there, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, January 12th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Scott Wallace, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.